The pirates ashore may have the treasure, but how will Ned Lowe and George save their skins while getting the treasure to the ship? H. Bedford Jones, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. Many, many thanks to our financial supporters who pitch in every month to help us keep the lights on. If you enjoy the show, please sign up to be a supporter for as little as $5 a month. We'll give you a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. Thank you so much. And if you can't support us financially at this time, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you prefer listening on YouTube, our channel is now up to date. Welcome to Pirate Summer. Today we come to the end of our first adventure, but we have a few tales of swashbuckling sea dogs in our future. Keep a weather eye open for next week's seafaring frolic. And now, Pirate's Gold, Part 4 of 4, by H. Bedford Jones. Chapter 10 In the course of the day, Ned Lowe and I got David Spry decently buried and reoccupied our own cabins. Likewise, we noosed a huge turtle swimming alongside, for the season was just beginning, and the island waters were thick with the creatures, and we dined famously. We laid out loaded muskets and pistols with which to receive winter when he came, and all the while the pale eyes of Gunner Basil watched us. We left him bound and gagged all day, then fed and watered him, and took him below, ironing him where we had lain. He had not a word to say. It was late in the afternoon when we descried a boat under sail coming up the bay. The glass showed it to be one of the island boats, with four black islanders aboard. At sight of us they were fearful, but I stood in the shrouds and signaled them, so that they came on and rowed alongside. I could speak their tongue to some extent, and when they came aboard we had a conference. They were simple fellows, come hither after turtle. I told them that our men had mutinied and gone off in a boat, but would return, and that we wanted a dozen islanders to ship aboard us as far as Lisbon. They were suspicious, until I gave them what money we had, and told them my name, and that I had visited their island of San Nicolas more than once. Your governor knows me, I told them. Also, Signor Gonsalvo, the former governor. They will tell you that I am an honest man of my word. How soon can you get the men here? They talked together, and decided to return at once to San Nicolas, saying that they could be back the day after tomorrow in the morning, barring bad weather. Ned Lowe made me a sign of delighted assent, and so we agreed upon it. Before sunset the blacks were rowing out of the bay, and so departed. Although Ned and I kept watch and watch that night, we saw no signs of winter coming back. Sunrise was at hand. We were getting breakfast in the galley, 
when Ned stepped to the rail, then called me and ran aft for the glass. Sure enough, there was a blot out between the sand spits. When we had inspected that blot through the glass, we stood staring one at the other in blank amazement. For the tube showed us that this was the longboat indeed, with a figure stooped aft, bailing the water out of her, which we took to be that of Polly Langton. Only two others were aboard her, and these at the oars, Cook Philip and Boson Pilcher. They were rowing her slowly and wearily, as men who had been long hours at a task, and the boat was low in the water. Stove in, George, said Ned Lowe, wrinkling up his eyes perplexedly. Now what's it mean, I wonder? Where's Winter and the other six? So slowly did they come on that it was after sunrise when they drew near, and Polly waved to us. The two men were too exhausted to wave, although we caught a faint grin from Philip and saw the boatswain nod his head to us as the faces strained upward. The boat was half filled with water, and we saw that she was badly stove in the bows. In fact, so weary were all three of them that they hardly made any comment upon finding us two alone there in the ship hours. The two men crawled over the rail and sank down, gasping for breath. Polly leaned against the rail and looked at us with a tremulous smile upon her lips. Her hair was fallen about her cheeks, and she was very lovely. Where's Winter? I asked. She nodded toward the sand hills. Coming. We have been rowing most of the night. Rest then, said Ned. Come, George, I'll be cook. You bring ale. I fetched some ale, and Ned produced biscuit and turtle steak. We asked no questions, but waited. And when she had eaten a little, the girl suddenly looked up at us. Gentlemen, I ask your pardon for... for everything, she faltered. I have learned the truth. Ned took her hand and smoothed it, looking into her eyes. Dear lass, he said gravely, why speak so? Sure, we owe our lives to your wit and good sense. Had you not taken the head of things? Her eyes widened and came to me. But, but they used me as a tool, she said. Bose Pilcher has told me all, as you told me last night, Mr. Roberts. It is all true about that man Winter. Does he suspect that you know? I demanded. No, no. He was glad enough when I offered to come back in the boat and bail her. Then where's the gold? Ned broke out in a laugh. Come, lass, forget all else and tell us what's happened. Aye, he has the gold, she said, color coming into her cheeks. We found it just where the directions said, but in coming ashore we ran on a sunken rock that hurt the boat. To fetch back the gold in her was impossible, so Winter remained to bundle it into canvas and carry it across the headland to the bay here. He was too excited over the gold to protest my departure, and sent Pilcher and Cook Philip with me. He is sure that Bose has joined in his schemes, you see. He'll be here some time today. Good, cried Ned joyfully. You lads, get forward and sleep while you can. First, however, help get the boat hauled in, and I'll go to work on her. Canvas and pitch will make her tight enough to use in a pinch. When the boat was hauled aboard, 
Pilcher and the cook stumbled off to sleep, and Ned fell to his task, whistling blithely. I got a spare sail rigged aft for a sun shelter, and remained talking with Polly Langton, who refused to go below. She was much concerned to have matters set right between her and us, but no more anxious on this head than was I myself. From Pilcher, I discovered, she had gained a very accurate understanding of the whole situation, including her worthy uncle's past history, since the boatswain had held back nothing. However it must have shocked her, she was now facing two stern realities to spend much thought on the past. Now I went over with her the very details of the voyage, pointing out how this and that had come about, and having the perspective of distance and an awakened mind, Polly could clearly enough discern the right and wrong of things. Of Ned Lowe I could say very little, but I told enough to make her see that he was not altogether the bloody pirate he had been named. In an hour, we were talking and laughing together as friendly as ever, or perhaps more so, and there came up mention of her native Devon. At that she cried out bitterly, Oh, if we could only get away from here before the men come back. I want none of that gold. I would it were all at the bottom of the sea, and I am afraid of winter. If you had heard and seen him when they brought the gold up out of the hole, you'd have thought he was more devil than man. Can't we work the ship out now, at once? It might be done, I said, casting an eye at the bay. There's a light air off the land. Oh, Ned! Ned! Ned Lowe had finished his work on the boat, and came at my call, pipe in one hand and mug of ale in the other. Very merry and laughing he was, too. Ned, the last fears winter, and I am none so sure that it were wise to lie here all today and tonight. He took a brace of muskets with him, and pistols. What do you say to letting the gold go hang, slipping the hawser, and— Not by a good deal, exclaimed Ned coolly. He regarded Polly with a smile, his brown face very frank and cheerful to see. I don't blame ye, Polly, for wanting to be rid of it all and away from here. But, lass, gold is mighty useful in the world. Once away from the King Sagamore, once back in London or Devon or where you will, a few thousand guineas is a mighty fine thing wherewith to fight the world, the flesh and the devil. If the clergy had each a pocketful of money, there'd be less talk of hell and more of heaven. I'll wager you never heard a bishop talk of hell now nor ever will. We see the world quite different through gold spectacles, lass. A brave dissertation, Ned, I broke in dryly, but come to the point. He pointed overside with his pipe, to where several large black fins were slowly cleaving the water. There you are. Come to pick the leavings of our turtle. What better guard could we have against winter tonight, George? Without a boat he can't reach us and a musket-ball or two will do us no harm. So fear not, we are safe from him and all the others. As for the gold, I mean to have it from him. That's one reason for not leaving. The second is like unto it. I'll not leave him with that gold in his paws, do you mind? I need the gold, and I'll not see him rewarded with it. Nay, leave him ashore for a day or so without fresh water, or food, or strong liquor, and hear how the dog'll whine to us. We'll give him bread for gold, and when the last red round piece is down below, I'll slip the cable and set our Black Island men to the braces and leave Thomas Winter here 
to think on his sins. For your sake, lass, he continued, I'll not try to hang him, since that might make or lead to trouble. We'll leave him marooned and be content with the gold. Leaving him to argue the matter with Polly, I took his mug and went forward to get some ale. While I was there, Pilcher came yawning on deck. I paused for some talk with him, and he told me what had finally and terribly convinced the girl. Under the jubilant excitement of finding the gold, Winter had momentarily flung off his mask, telling the last that he meant to have her as well as the gold. He had charged Pilcher to watch her closely and to lock her into her cabin on reaching the ship. What Winter had said to Polly Langton was enough to set any man's blood to boiling. Then and there I changed my mind about leaving the bay. Bose, who's this fellow Winter? I demanded. He's no riffling Jack playing in luck. There must be a name to him that men would know. Aye, sir, but I could never come at it. Pilcher shook his gold earrings. Gunner Basil knows him, I be certain. No one else. Where be Gunner and Dickens, sir? I told him of Dickens' escape. Gunner's ironed down below. You must have deceived them all finely, Bose. Winter really thought you'd go on the account with him, eh? Gonna be an old fool, Pilcher grinned at me. Yet there's murder in the heart of him, mark that. The tales he's poured into me would shiver your soul, Mr. Roberts. If he be not a liar, he has seen and done such things as it melted Turk. Go down and talk to him, I suggested. Perhaps you can get something out of him about winter. That man's a pirate, a known man, I'm certain of it. Be going to hangin', sir? Aye, you might get the line and block ready now, too. I went aft with the ale and informed Ned and Polly bluntly that I was for staying until the men returned. Then Ned Lowe saw what the bosun was doing at the main and questioned me about it. Making ready for winter, I said. The man hangs. Why so changed? said Ned, laughing. Would you jeopardize us all? He insulted the lass here, I said. Make no more talk about it now. Polly Langton looked at me and the color came into her face. We must have looked mighty humorous, for Ned Lowe began to laugh again and went forward. When he was gone, the little lass spoke softly. You must not bear him such ill, Mr. Roberts. No protests, if you please, I told her frankly. Pilcher told me what was said, and I'll give that rascal what he deserves if it kills me. But it won't. Before we leave here, the rogue hangs. She looked troubled, but made no more mention of the matter. All this while, we were keeping a sharp eye upon the sand hills, but in vain. And since Winter and the six men could not come near the little bay without being seen, we were safe in taking our ease. After a little, Philip appeared and came aft. We were prompt to thank him for his loyalty, and for those keys which had near cost him his life to obtain. The negro was delighted with our words of praise, and Ned promised him more substantial reward later, when occasion offered. I had never seen Ned so full of good spirits as this morning. Polly began to take all in jest his announced purpose of buying out her share of the ship and going forth once more on the account, and small wonder, no man ever looked less like a pirate than Ned Lowe that morning. 
Even when he stated that he would transship her at Lisbon, she thought him joking. So came noon, and Philip brewed us a mighty stew of green turtle in the regular island style, which we hugely enjoyed. Pilcher had held some conversation with Gunner Basil, but it was all one-sided. He reported that the gunner would utter nothing save oaths, and those unfit for repetition. We had just lighted our pipes, and Cook Philip was clearing away the meal from the shelter aft, when Polly Langton looked up and changed countenance suddenly. I followed her gaze and came to my feet. Stand by, Ned. Here they are. We stood at the rail, watching the seven bowed men coming over the crest of the sand toward the bay. Seven? No, there was one more following them, eight and all, and the eighth was the cabin boy, Dickon. Chapter 11 Foremost of the eight came Thomas Winter. He and the six men after him had flung away their arms, even to pistols. They bore each of them a rude canvas sack, some on shoulders, others in arms, and by their weariness under that dragging weight of wealth, we knew how great was the treasure they had unearthed. Dickon alone carried no burden. Dickon has told them his tale. Yet they come, exclaimed Ned Lowe, watching the scene with frowning perplexity. We shared his uneasy wonder, all of us. We had expected anything but this open coming. It could not be doubted that Winter now knew we held the ship and he probably thought the gunner dead. He could have had little hopes of Pilcher and the cook having subdued us, yet he came on openly, the six men behind him, bringing their golden treasure down to the shore of the bay, and all unarmed too, except for knives. I looked for them to attack us tonight somehow, I observed, but not for such a coming. Watch out for tricks, Ned. Yes, yes, added Polly earnestly. Don't let him trick you. Fear not, said Nedlow quietly. I want but that gold of him, and he can have the island, and let him try his tricks now that we know him for what he is. The eight came filing down to the sandy shore of the bay, a scant cable's length from us. Way enough, lads, cried Thomas Winter, dumping his load into the sand. In the hot stillness of the bay, with not a breath stirring aloft, each sound reached us plainly. The hot panting of the men, as one by one they added their burdens to the pile. The oaths and curses of Dickon, toiling in their wake. The dull sound of clinking metal, as the pile of gold grew complete. More than one of the godly rogues vented himself of profane words, as shoulders and arms were rubbed. Gold makes a change, even as I told you, in men, commented Ned Lowe. Mark those rascals, George. A day or so ago they were pious, regenerate dogs. And now look at the flame in their faces, the passion in them. More like thirst, commented the girl practically. The water in the boat's cask was foul, and they have thrown away even the provisions in order to carry the gold. That was true. The group of men stood there staring at us, and even in the face of winter we could read the hopeless despondency of a beaten man. They had neither water, food, nor arms. We 
who held the ship, held everything. At length, winter came down to the water's edge and hailed us. Ahoy! Pilcher! Are you there, bosun? Aye, roared back Bose. Here, and with the cotton, you damned dog! Winter stared at us from his long face. I hadn't thought you'd go back on us, Bose, said he, and shook his head. Be you with him too, Miss Polly? She would not answer him. Ned Lowe made laughing response. Come aboard, Thomas Winter, come aboard with the men. Swim, lads, swim. The ale is warm but hearty, and here fine fresh turtle, and fish for the taking. Come aboard, lads, and never mind the sharks. The other men and Dickon were by now sprawled in the sand in various attitudes of despair, but Thomas Winter stood and stared at us. Master Lowe, you'd never see us starve and die athirst, he cried. Aye, and with a good heart, said Ned cheerfully. There's water to the south end of the island, lads. Take up your gold and go for it. Sullen curses from the men showed how his words bit, and how they themselves had changed from their former godliness. Ned Lowe laughed at them. Come, come, regenerate hearts, he derided. Shall I have Abgunner Basil out of his irons to give you some godly exhortation? Master, we be poor, unlucky men, returned Thomas Winter mournfully. There be no getting round it. You have beat us. We are throwed the main, and you have beat us despite all. Will you not have mercy on us? Not I, said Ned Lowe blithely. What about your rendezvous with the rose pink, Master Winter? Do you still think to pick her up and carry these good honest lads off to a life of piracy? I watched the men at this, hoping to find that this was news to them. But they clustered about Dickon, merely glared at us. Evidently they had thrown off all restraint. The very sight and touch of the gold had corroded their souls. Thomas Winter only wagged his long head and wiped sweat from his brow. You are beat us, he said again. We are no water, no food, and we'll die like dogs out here in the hot sun. Take us board, master, even if it be in irons. Not I, quoth Ned Lowe, tapping tobacco into his pipe. I want ye not. You have gold there in plenty. Eat it, drink it, make a canopy of it to shade yourselves from the sun. We'll be gone from here tomorrow morning, and you can enjoy the gold to the full. A sudden transport of rage shook Winter. Gizzard and guts! Will you have no mercy, damn ye? He roared out. Should have thought of that yesterday, I broke in, and he stared at me as if he had never seen me before. You dog, Winter. I'll see you hanged for what you said to the lass. Mind that. I'll see that the island men know you for pirates, and the first king's ship we speak will come to take you off. Master Roberts, you'll never do that, he returned as if struck aghast by the possibility. We didn't do no harm to you, sir. Only put you in the bilbo, so to speak, for a day or two. We be main sorry for all we had done, masters. 
Aye, we be main sorry. We be naught but poor sailormen, masters. Ye'd not bear malice against us. And now that ye out the ship and all's well, ye'd never go off and maroon us here. Aye, said Ned, imperturbably, like the dogs you are. Do ye speak to em for us, mistress? Brazenly, Winter addressed himself to Polly. After all, mistress, we be Englishmen. Maybe we aren't been tempted, aye, it's true enough. The yellow gold tempted us, mistress, but we be not all bad. Do ye speak a word to Cap'n, and he'll hear it. We'll work ship good and faithful, we will. Ah, he can have us in irons for the mutineers we be, so he don't leave good men here to die of thirst. Do he speak a word to him, do now. Polly stood and looked at him, her eyes inflexible. Ned Lowe laughed again. She'll not speak the word, Winter, nor would I listen. You'll set no foot on this ship again. Thomas Winter stood, desolate, with head hanging, for a long moment. Then he heaved a great sigh and looked up. It be main hard on us, masters, he said slowly. Will you make no terms? Not with you, Winter, answered Ned, who by this time had his pipe alight and stood puffing calmly. I'll take the men aboard and we'll hand them over for trial. That's their wages if they want to come. Where be David Spry, Captain? spoke out one of the men. Dead, I responded. Murdered by Dickon there. A foul lie, mates, screeched young Dickon. Spry were murdered like poor Mr. Russell. Knifed him in the back, Master Roberts did. Don't believe him. It's but to murder us he wants us aboard. I disdained to answer this. Among the men there arose a violent altercation. Some were for accepting Ned's terms, anxious to get away from the island at any cost. Others called Ned and me bloody murderers and would not allow it. Then one of the men leaped up hotly. We all stick or we all go, he cried out. Who says stick? He and three others voted to stay. Two of the men cried that they would come aboard, and he turned on them angrily. No, you don't, he cried. All anonities. We stick with thee, Winter. Ned frowned at this, for I think he had counted on some of the men helping to work ship, and this attitude of theirs rather took him aback. Winter, who had listened to them in silence, now faced us again and spoke. You are the whip hand of us, master, he said resignedly. But if you will have no pity on us, will you not barter us even for the gold? Give us biscuit and some rum, and water enough to last until we have found the springs, and set a price on it. Now I perceived by the light in Ned's eyes that it was for this he had been waiting all the time, for he was intent upon getting that gold aboard. One of the men cried out for shoes, since the sand blistered their bare feet, and another for hats. It might be done, lads, rejoined Ned Lowe, not too eagerly. You have seven bags of gold there. For the top four of those bags, I'll set ashore all the things you desire. And for the bottom three bags, 
I'll leave the longboat behind when we sail in the morning. What say ye to that? The boat's stove, said Winter. Aye, but I've patched her, and ye can clap another patch over. What say ye now? Winter turned and stepped back to the men. There was a hoarse discussion for and against the offer, since certain of the men had no mind to hand over all the gold. Winter, however, argued with them at length, showing them the hopelessness of their condition. Polly and I came back under the awning of sail, and Ned joined us. Winter has enough sense to know he's beaten, he observed complacently. Be careful of him, said Polly slowly. Be careful. Let the gold go and put to sea now, or he'll play us some trick yet. Not he, and Ned chuckled heartily. Hark to him arguing about it. Why, alas, they haven't so much as a pistol among them. It'd be a sin and shame to leave all that gold behind, your gold, that your uncle died to leave you his share of, honestly bought, and the gold poor John Russell died for, and his share ours too. Eh, hey, George, why so solemn? Gold gets paid for, I said. Oh, I'll be glad of my share, Ned. But gold gets paid for. Some pays in work and sweat and gets little, like I've done these years at sea. But I've got better things than gold. Some pays in roguery and gets much, and think it the biggest thing in life, but the gold decays on them, and they find it's not so big after all. Gold don't decay, said Ned briskly, and clapped me on the shoulder. Ah, George, so art still a philosopher, eh? And I think George has the right of it, said Polly, then blushed red. I mean, Mr. Roberts. Nay, nay, said Ned, laughing. It's George and Ned and Polly among us three, lass. Why not? Aren't we friends and comrades together? If we be free and easy, it's all in good comradeship. What about Dickon? I demanded. You'd not take him aboard, even if the men come? No. I had meant to leave him out of the offer, said Ned, and knit his brows. I want those two men, if they'll come. We'll have need of them. We must work the ship around to the south end of the island and take on fresh water, too. We need those men, George. But Dickon stays here, the foul little beast. Gunner Basil we'll take with us. Ahoy, Captain, called out the deep voice of Winter. We went to the rail and found him ankle-deep in water, staring at the ship. Agreed, Captain he called, on one condition, that you let Gunner Basil come free to us. He knows where there be more gold. We can get it in the boat and join the Rose Pink if we aren't no bad luck. That's our best offer, Captain, and I had sweat making the agree to it. Done with you, Winter, said Nedlow promptly. Now listen well. These men of yours shall retire a hundred feet to the top of that little sand hill. You wait for us where you are. At the first sign of treachery, you'll be shot, and those men with you. Understand that, do you? Aye, sir. But why talk so? Winter looked astonished. I be not treacherous, master. It's mortal good of you, says I. To be so main kind to us, with boat and all. 
Bain that so, lads? Come, lads, give the master three cheers. Not they. The six men were again vehemently discussing Winter's offer to them, two begging to be let go aboard the ship, the other four dissenting violently. Dickon took no share in that talk, but sat chewing on a stick to ease his thirst, glowering savagely at the ship. You going to make the barter now, Ned? I asked. He nodded, beaming gaily. Aye, lad, get the gold aboard and stowed. Then by morning, most like all six of those rogues will beg to be took away on my terms. We got the sharks for watchdogs, mind ye. It's all safe enough. Wait now, you'll see. I'll take no chance of that dog tricking me. Under his assuring confidence, Polly's uneasy look vanished, and I gave over all protest. Indeed, the thought of that gold coming aboard us had a sort of necromancy that bewitched us all with its wizard light. We turned to in the waist and got the boat into the water. Winter sang out to know when we would release Gunner Basil, and Ned told him in the morning before we sailed, with which Winter had to content himself, taking our word on the matter. Finding that the boat was well-patched and worthy, we got into her some bags of biscuit and other stores, with rum and a breaker of water, and everything that could be useful to the rascals, save firearms. Winter anxiously demanded if we would leave the boat in the morning likewise, to which Ned assented. Boat and gunner together, Winter. Now get your men up the hill. Ned turned to us. George, you and the bosun take pistols and row the boat ashore. Philip, you stop here at the rail with the muskets handy and let fly if you see anything amiss. His scheme was safe enough, it appeared. Pilcher and I got down into the boat, put out an oar each with pistols at our feet, while Ned sat in the stern with two more pistols, so if need were, our pistols could account for six of the rascals. Meantime, Dickon and the six men had retired as commanded to the crest of a little sand hill a hundred feet back from the water. Give way said Ned, seating himself. He looked up and waved a hand laughingly. Fare you well, Polly. We'll bring you gold when we come again. Be careful, she warned once more. We headed the boat for the shore and heaved her slowly through the water. Presently her nose scraped. Thomas Winter caught her by the bow and as Pilcher and I stepped out, gave a tremendous pull that brought her a quarter length up on the sand. Now, said Ned Lowe, cocking his pistol, watch yourself, you dog. Take out the stuff and throw in the gold. Pistols, George, and watch him. Thomas Winter, his long horse face a drip with sweat, gave us a reproachful look. Can he not see you when a man be playing fair? he said, and stooped over his task. Indeed, it seemed a bit ridiculous that three of us should wait there with our pistols in hand while one man labored. Winter put his giant strength to work with a will and heaved the stuff ashore until at length he had the boat cleared. Then, wiping his brow, he dropped in the sand for a brief rest. At this instant, we caught a cry from the men on the sand hill. Oh, master, oh, captain, we'll take me and Jeff aboard. Aye, that we will, sang out Ned Lowe, who still sat in the boat's stern. 
we heard a cry from Polly. Among the men on the hill arose something of a scuffle. Two of them were trying to break away. The others were restraining them. Winter paid no heed to this, but lay panting, his eyes closed. Then the two men got free and began to run. The others hot after them as they leaped down the hillock. The two struck at their pursuers, who followed at their heels, cursing and struggling. Nedlow heaved up his pistol. Let him go, you rascals, he cried. At that, Thomas Winter heaved himself up and looked. Then his stentorian voice roared. Stand back, you villains! Back, or I'll break your blasted heads! The two foremost came running to us, the others still at their heels. Ned hesitated to fire, as did Pilcher and I. From the ship, Philip let fly with a musket, the ball going high. A cry broke from one of the men running to us. Don't let him stop us, Captain! We're coming! Winter roared at them again, but the rout of men came rushing at us. At a little distance, Dickon and the four pursuers paused. The other two came panting up and dropped on their knees beside the boat. We'll take us, Captain, they begged together. Aye, but you'll stay in irons until we sail, said Ned Lowe, then looked up at the others. In with you, lads. You there, stand back. Back! Sullenly, the others began to obey, while Winter roared at them again. One of the men clambered into the boat and then went sprawling atop of Ned. The other was up and at me before I realized his intent. Winter whirled and flung himself at Pilcher, and the others came bursting at us. Chapter 12 I cut a sorry figure in this mishap, for my pistol went off in air, and I was on my face in the sand with two men plunging on me. Ned Lowe blew out the life of his assailant, but could not get rid of the body before another was on him. As for the bosun, he went down like an ox under the fist of winter and stayed down, and Cook Philip dared not fire for fear of hitting us. A cruel trap it was, well sprung and full of guile, and we were in truth snared in our own folly. I was bound hand and foot and left lying, but wrenched myself about so that I could see what was happening. All this took place, not as I give it here, but so swiftly that it were hard to realize at once. Ned Lowe was struggling both with dead and living, trying to get his other pistol free in the stern of the boat. She had careened as the load was taken out of her, and now Thomas Winter, an ugly grin showing his fangs, leaned forward and bore down on her with his weight. As she gave, Ned Lowe and his assailant were tumbled into the water. That takes the bite out of his pistol, quoth Winter. At him, lads! And alive, mind ye. Any man uses his knife, I'll spread eagle. Why he was so anxious to take Ned alive was by no means clear, and it came very near to costing him all that he had gained. For Ned was on his feet, knife in hand and standing knee-deep in water. Twice, with knife and fist, he broke clear of the men and was trying to swim for it to the ship, taking the chance of sharks. He could not get away, however. At length, one of the men got a grip on his knife arm, and the others piled in. All went down in a turmoil of water and spray, and they hailed Ned ashore with a man hanging to either arm, and so bound him. Winter turned, shot out a long arm, and seized Dickon by the shoulder. Boy, bide ye here, and watch him, and if ye murderin', I'll flay the hide off thy back, he said, 
in so deadly a voice that the boy shrank back. Then, loosing Dickon, Winter roared at the men. Pile in, lads, pile in. To the ship, before they lay a gun on us. He shoved out the boat and leaped in. The five remaining men after him. There were only two oars in the boat, but with two men to an oar, they sent her through the water. From the King Sagamore began to bang muskets. Both Polly and the black cook were firing from the rail, but quite failed to stop the boat. Two of the men were wounded, and no other damage was done. A groan broke from Ned Lowe, as the boat swept in under the ship's side and the men began to go up. Dickon, who had picked up one of Pilcher's fallen pistols, echoed the groan in a demoniac chuckle. Not quite so easily done, however. The first man over the rail went back to feed the sharks, with a ball through him. Winter and the others piled aboard and beat the black cook down. We could hear Winter roaring at them not to kill him, for they would have need of every man to work ship. Polly had fled to the quarterdeck with a pistol, and now Winter ran at her. She would have killed him then, with luck, but the priming flashed in the pan. Winter tore away the weapon and picked her up and took her below. A moment later he reappeared, having locked her in a cabin. Upon that, having secured the ship, the men began to go over her like famished wolves. Gunner Basil was found and let loose. The ale cask was broached, and our turtle was made way with. One and all were so keen for food and drink that they forgot all else. Dickens stood on the shore and bawled curses at them unheeded. So he turned to the pile of stuff we had brought ashore, broke out some biscuit, opened the rum and the water, and began to get himself into a fine condition of drunkenness. Ned and I looked at one another, but I could not reproach him. You were right, George he said, and swore bitterly. That was all, but it showed how keen was his self-blame for what had happened. After a little, Dickon came to his feet, staggering, for the rum had shot to an empty stomach, and he was drunk. Plucking out his knife, he made his uncertain way to the form of Boson Pilcher, who lay as winter had stretched him out. Squatting down, he began with deliberate deviltry to cut the gold earrings from the ears of the bosun. Naturally enough, this treatment revived Pilcher, who sat up cursing. Dickon hiccuped, fell way and retreated. I cried out to Pilcher to kill the young devil and free us, but as Bose came to his feet, Dickon picked up his pistol and let fly. Pilcher reeled to the shot, and a staining smear of red leaped out across his face. Turning around, not knowing what had happened, Pilcher ran for it. Dickon, with the second loaded pistol, staggered after him and fired again, but missed. The bosun disappeared over the crest of the sand hills. Whether dying or dead, we knew not. And Dickon came back again, uttering oaths. A roar of maudlin approbation came from the men watching the ship's rail. He shook his fist at them and returned to his rum. With all these things, the afternoon was passing quicker than we knew. But to me and Ned Lowe, lying there on the open sand, the time dragged like an eternity. Dickon gave no heed to us, but sat maundering over the pistols, trying to recharge them with futile fingers until his potations and the hot sun sent him fast asleep. The pile of goods we had fetched ashore lay where winter had flung them. Beyond... The pile of canvas-sacked gold lay gray and hideous, at least to my eyes, 
since, for this gold, had Polly's liberty and our own lives been bartered. The men aboard ship were still drinking and feasting. The sun was fast westering when Ned Lowe turned a white, strained face to me. I almost got it, but not quite, he said in a low voice. When I roll over, see if you can put your fingers on the cord. A chorus of drunken song lifted to us as he wrenched about in the sand and got his back to mine. Of Pilcher we had seen nothing. Either the bosun was dead or lying hurt and unconscious like a wounded animal. Instinctive hope rises in all of us. Now, as I fumbled with blind fingers for the cords at Ned's wrists, I perceived Dickon asleep in the sunlight of the dying afternoon, saw the pistols at his feet, realized that we might yet have a desperate chance to win, and as the thought came to me, I heard the rattle and clatter of men getting into a boat, and turned my eyes to the bay to see the longboat shoved off from the ship and sent toward us by half-drunken oarsmen, with winter in the stern. Give way, ye dogs, came his voice. Lively does it. No time to lose, lad, said Ned coolly. I've been all afternoon working em loose. There you are, then. I could not see him as I lay, but I heard him curse softly. His hands were too stiff and bloodless for his fingers to work on his bound feet. Meantime, the longboat was coming in to the shore. Winter standing in the stern and roaring at his rowers to lay back. Drunk as they were, they brought him in with a rush. He leaped out of the boat and was at us, just as Ned Lowe rose up free. For a long moment, the two men looked at each other. Behind Winter, the four men tumbled ashore and stood gaping, too fuddled to know what was going on. But I, looking up at Winter, perceived that he seemed cold sober. Behind Ned, Dickon was stirring and staggering to his feet, wakened by the voices. Winter and Ned Lowe stood motionless, a grin upon the hoarse face of Winter, who realized that Ned's feet would scarce bear him as yet. Why, here's bloody Ned the pirate, said he, and guffawed. I had never before known, as I knew now upon looking up at him, the indescribable villainy of the man's face. Perhaps he had never before let himself go free of restraint. Now, with the mask off, the furious and inhuman cruelty of him was all evident. I'll fight ye bare-handed, bloody Ned, he went on. Dost remember the fight ye had with Francis Spriggs on his own quarter-deck, eh? Ned started. Sounds. How in the devil's name do you know of that, Winter? I heard tell on it. Winter took a step forward, his huge hands clenching and opening again at his sides. His mirth vanished. He showed his yellowed fangs in a snarl, as does a dog to frighten an adversary. Fight, ye bruiser. I had looked a long while to get my fingers around that wimpipe of thine. Gizzard and guts, but I'll tear it out afore I finish ye. A spasm of ferocity crossed his face. He lunged forward and dealt a powerful blow with his fist. Ned avoided it, stumbled a little on his numbed feet, evaded the huge winter, and so came around in front of me. There he faced about and put up his hands, and for the moment I saw the old reckless gaiety in his face. Fall to, you bastard, 
he called out, and then drove in a right-hander that rocked Winter's head on his big shoulders. Now they fell to in all truth. Ned's recklessness vanished. Before half a minute was gone, he knew that Winter was coming in to tear the throat out of him, literally. After the first few blows, all Winter tried to do was to grab with those steel-hook fingers of his. Once he got a grip on Ned's shoulder, and nothing but a full-weight smash on the point of the chin loosened it. And as he came, Winter began to curse. It was no ordinary cursing, but the foulest outpouring of rottenness that could be spawned in tavern or forecastle. That volley of filth drove Ned white with sheer fury, for there was a venomous madness in it that burned. As for me, I wondered what reason there could be back of it, for Winter's rage was no ordinary battle anger. If you want it, take it, you dog, panted Ned suddenly. He opened his arms and let Winter come into a clinch. Both men gasped under the impact. Then Winter set himself and made as if he would tear Ned low asunder. Instead, Ned sent him headlong over the hip in West Country fashion, and when he rolled over and leaped upright, half of Winter's shirt was torn away, and over his heart there was tattooed a crimson, bleeding heart. I saw it, and Ned saw it in the same instant. Ned Lowe took a step backward, and his face was ashen. For a moment he stood powerless, absolutely paralyzed by the realization of whom he faced. Winter grinned and snarled, and then cursed him anew. Aye, it's Trunnell Toby, he roared out furiously. Trunnell Toby it be, you spawn of hell, who have chased me these five year, and now it be Trunnell Toby a chasing of you. Ned seemed to shiver. Then a frightful cry broke from his lips, and he hurled himself forward, and the other came to meet him. No less was the hatred of the hunted than that of the hunter. But now Ledno was as a very flame of fire. Not a word came from his lips, and his face was a grey mask. His arms wrought upon Winter like the rods of an engine, and all the brute power of the other man was helpless before him. It was an awful thing upon which we stared at that moment, a man taking bitter and utter vengeance for such wrongs as few men have suffered. For Ned Lowe was taking vengeance in red and running measure. He moved about winter like a dancing corpusant, and left the fiery mark of his fists wherever he touched. Not once could winter reach him. He drove in without mercy or pity, until winter was backing helplessly before him, roaring in fury, yet unable to fight back. Then Ned began to utter sharp, panting words. Take that for the girl, ye murderer, and that, and that for the old man. For the two you killed, with one bullet, and that. I'll tear out the throat of ye yet, roared Winter, even under the blows. I've saved ye up, till I could hang ye. He tried a kick. Ned parried it and drove out with his own booted foot. Winter gave a horrible grunt and doubled up, and Ned smote him full in the face, so that he jerked backward again and fell in the sand. He tried to rise and could not. Up with ye murderer, cried Ned, kicking him. Up, and take. Something flew over me, catching the last rays of the dying sunlight in its course. Something that curved above me against the sky like a blue flame. 
I heard Dickens' wild, shrill cry and saw Ned Lowe stagger and throw out his arms. Then he set one hand to his side and pulled out the knife. Ned plunged to his knees. Even then he tried to reach the figure of winter, stabbed down at it with the crimsoned knife, but the blade only dabbled the sand. Ned fell to his hands and then slowly rolled over and lay still. Then there was a silence. Even Dickens stood aghast before his deed. Upon that silence broke a storm of oaths and curses and orders from the ship. Gunner Basil stood on the rail, shaking his fist and trying to waken the staring men. Aboard with ye! Aboard with the gold! Aboard! he yelled frantically. Aboard, ye drunken fools, afore night comes! They awoke, stirred, broke into movement. I could say no word for the tears that were blinding my eyes, until Dickon came and took the knife from Ned's relaxed hand. Then I cursed him, and cursed him so bitterly that he could not answer me, but ran to the boat. Me, they hove into the stern, and the groaning figure of winter above me. Then the gold was stowed aboard, and leaving poor Ned where he lay, they ran out the boat and set her for the ship. So the day died and the swift twilight of the tropics merged into night almost by the time I was carried over the rail and flung into the scuppers. And the buckets of sea water that they flung over the quivering bulk of winter came running down past me in reddened streams. Chapter 13 Lanterns were lighted above the deck dimly lighting the planks and coiled ropes and sea gear strewn about. Besides Winter, Gunner Basil and Dickon, there remained four men, two of them wounded. I, who lay bound in the scuppers, and Cook Philip, who had been beaten into a mass of bruises and now went groaningly about his work in abject terror. Polly Langton had not appeared on deck, being still locked below. Winter was a long time in being brought to life, for Ned had nearly killed him. I lay watching in bitterness of soul. So this man was Trunnell Toby. That explained much. His crafty dissimulation, his plotting, his venomous hatred of Ned Lowe, his anxiety to take Ned alive. Gunner Basil and he had shipped aboard us with Dickon, with the twofold intent of pirating us and murdering Ned Lowe. And they had won. Despite all, they had won. Pilcher was dead, and Russell, and Ned Lowe. They had the ship, the treasure, and at thought of Polly Langton down below, I kept back a groan. Gunner Basil brought dry clothes, which winter donned, his face all puffed and bruised out of shape. Dickon brought him a great flagon of rum, which he gulped down neat. With this to hearten him, Winter was soon on his feet and ordering things. Gunner Basil, who knew what arrangements I had made with the Black Islanders, told him that he might look for a crew in the morning. But Winter was more interested in learning just what had happened ashore. He sent for Dickon, who faced him jauntily at first, but soon changed his demeanor. So it was you, knifed bloody Ned, said Winter heavily. I have a mind to hang ye, lad. 
He meant the words, too. Dickens shivered under his baleful stare. It was to save your life, cried the boy. He had he down. An oath burst from Winter. Stow your jaw. I have broke his cursed neck in another moment, you swab. Get out of my sight before I got ye. Oh, Gunner, is the boat made fast? Fast but not hauled up, responded Gunner Basil. I had thought to go ashore later and turn some turtle. Turtle be damned, growled Winter. Where be the gold? Fetch it here, lads. On the deck, fetch it here, my bullies. Dickens slunk into the background, stumbled over me and kicked me savagely, uttering a flood of curses whose malevolence was directed rather at winter, I thought, than at me. The roughly sacked gold was brought up and chunked down on the deck. Winter called for a knife and then stooped down, painfully, since he was bruised and sore from head to foot. With the knife he slit the canvas of each sack and let all the gold come out into a ruddy yellow stream over the planks. There ya are, he roared. Dickon, more rum. There ya are, lads. Fill your pockets. That's what bra lads get on the account. Gold. Take it, bullies. Though I was across the deck from them, I could see all that took place there beneath the lanterns. Everyone flung forward at the gold. Those four seamen, who a short fortnight previous had been exhorters to righteousness, and honest enough about it too, had now been turned completely to the right about. They matched the eager oaths of the gunner and Dickon in the scramble for the gold, until it dawned upon them that there was more gold here than they could well stuff into pockets, so that they all fell to laughing and jesting hideously. The rum entered into it too, for a keg was brought up and broached, and all hands fell into a wild Saturnalia. Each man decked himself to his fancy with plundered stuff from our after-cabins. Pistols and knives were brought forth and donned. In the midst came a flash and a roar as Dickens' pistol went off and came near to killing one of the men. The answer was a blow, and the two fell to fighting until Winter flung them apart with a bellowing laugh and made each of them down a mug of rum. I soon saw where this would end. Presently Winter cocked one bunged eye at the mainyard and roared at the gunner, Ah, Gunner Basil, be that block and tackle rigged to hang me? Aye, hiccuped the gunner, who was reeling. Master Roberts rigged and... Oh, oh, laughed Winter, and flung a knife across the deck that passed over me and slapped into the bulwark. Shalt hang at sunrise, Roberts, you dog. Shalt go to hell to join bloody Ned, damn you both. Dickon? Where are you, Dickon? Go unlock the lass's door and bid her come hither, else I'll come down and fetch her. He added a jest to this that fetched a howl of maudlin laughter from the other men. Dickon slipped away aft. Just here I heard a faint sound, and twisted about to see the black cook Philip come crawling along the rail toward me, cautiously. He was in mortal fear, and his teeth were chattering from terror. Nonetheless, he reached up and took from the wood that knife Winter had flung, and then set it to my bound wrists. They'll murder us all, he whispered. Swim for it, master. I'll wait. 
Then he went crawling away again into the darkness, and I realized that my hands were free and the knife left beside them. That was the act of a brave soul. So numbed was I that it was some time ere any feeling crept into my fingers, and I was as helpless as if still bound, though my arms could move freely enough. While I lay trying to get some sense of touch into my hands, in order to take the knife and free my ankles, Polly Langton came quietly into the circle of lantern light, followed by Dickon. The men gaped at her in shamed silence. Winter was seated on the keg, and met her look with a bold stare. Then he spoke. Dickon, draw rum for the captain's lady. Dickon moved about the task. As for me, I found the knife with my fingers, and inch by inch moved it in front of me and toward my ankles, fearful lest some eye catch the motion. None did, however, and presently I was parting the hemp that bound me. Not that this new freedom of mine gave any hope. I lay at the starboard rail of the ship, across from me, near where Winter and his men were grouped. The ropes ran down to the longboat. Gain that boat I could not. All I could do would be to go over the rail and swim for the shore. Help Polly Langton I could not, unless I attack and kill the whole band of those rogues, and that was an impossibility, even if I had firearms. At best, she might leap the rail and chance sharks in a swim for the shore. Even then winter would pursue, and if we got away in the darkness, what remained? A lingering death from thirst and hunger and misery of the hot sun. I had not forgotten Ned Lowe, however. As I felt the cords give under the blade, it came to me that I might at least finish winter, give the lass a fighting chance to reach the shore and perhaps work damage on the other rogues ere they killed me. And this I resolved to do for I was mad to get a blow at that devil winter. My ankles free, I began to rub them cautiously. Dickon came with the pewter flagon, but Polly took no heed. He shoved it at her, and grinning, laid his hand on her arm. At that, she snatched the flagon and struck it over his head, so that he staggered from the blow and cursed as the rum went over his face. I and his hand went to the knife at his belt, whereat winter came to life suddenly. Rising, he swept forward an open-handed blow that knocked Dickens sprawling. None of that, you spawn of hell, he roared. Get up! Dickens rose with so black a look that I thought he would let fly at winter. But the latter only broke into a laugh at the boy's aspect, in which the other men joined. Lay a hand to the captain's lady again, and I'll hang ye, he said, then turned to the lass with his bold regard. Give me the cup, lass. I'll fill it again for ye. Shall have silks and jewels, diamonds and pearls. Tronald Toby's lass ye shall be. Give it to me. She dropped the flagon on the deck. Murderers, she cried out. Oh, I saw it all from the cabin window. What have ye done with Master Roberts? We be going to hang on at dawn, said Winter, and grinned. Come, lass, come. What wilt offer for his life, eh? She be soft to that quarter, spoke up Gunner Basil with a hiccup. Main soft, I tell ye, Toby. Look out she don't knife ye, Toby. Just remember the Spanish jade that slipped a knife into Captain Franklin, eh? 
dummy eyes, but she split his weasand. Look out, you don't go the same way, Toby. Winter laughed, broke into a hearty guffaw. He stooped for the pewter cup, bent it into shape again, and held it to the spigot of the keg. When he had downed the rum, he wiped his swollen lips and tossed away the flagon. Come, lass, he said in a maudlin jocularity that might turn at any instant to a raging madness. Come, lass, we'll give a kiss to spare thy Roberts a day, eh? A kiss for a day, a day for a kiss, lass. Rot me, that rum out got my tongue. Bloody Ned is dead, and the bosun dead, and Trunnell Toby's loose. Here be a fine ship, and the rose pink yonder be waiting for us, and Trunnell Toby be Commodore, aye. Ye shall be Commodore's ladies, sweetie lass, with diamonds and rubies from the Indies, and fine silk to wear. Come, lass, a day for a kiss. No one was watching me. All eyes were on the lass, standing there straight and slim and defiant before the brute who taunted her. I had no skill throwing the knife, or I might have sunk it into him then. I gathered myself together and waited, ready to shout to Polly and leap forward at them. I will have not to do with you, you murderers, she spoke out bravely. I and if you hang Master Roberts, I'll never rest until I see each one of you brought to Tyburn Tree and laid there. At this winter guffawed again. Sink me, but I like a lass's spirit. So you'll bring me to Tyburn, eh? Well, any another had said that, lass. Ned Lowe said it five year gone when I pistoled the doddering old rogue who called him son, and when I put my knife into his lass, aye. But where's bloody Ned now, tell me? Call him up from hell to help he lass. Here, give us a kiss, and we'll leave Roberts hanging until sunset instead of sunrise. He lunged forward, his hand outstretched to grip the lass. She drew back a step, then, swift as light, threw her weight into a ringing blow. Her fist took Winter squarely in the mouth, where Ned Lowe had battered him sorely, and no less from the pain than from the surprise, sent him staggering and stumbling sideways until he tripped over a coiled rope and came to hands and knees. A wild howl of laughter and mirthful oaths surged up from one and all. Winters recovered, swayed on his feet, then uttered a roar of anger. I gathered myself for the leap, and a shout to Polly was upon my very lips when it was checked. For the girl took a step backward, staring at the rail. So great was the fright painted in her face that the men turned to see what she was staring at, and so did Winter. And over the rail they saw the face of Ned Lowe rising. Terror froze me, no less than them. Ned was dead in the sand and Boson Pilcher was dead, yet there rose the head and shoulder of Ned Lowe, and beside him those of Pilcher, whose earrings glittered yellow in the lantern light. Ghastly and terrible were they, heads and faces streaming with water, and drew themselves over the rail to the deck. From the one side winter gaped upon them, a frightful horror in his countenance. From the other, the group of men, 
sitting there paralyzed. Back from hell to help the lass, Thomas Winter, said Ned. At the sound of his voice I ceased to shiver, for that voice of his was alive and no ghost. I rose and stepped forward to join them, but no man heeded me. A sudden howl, an awful thing to hear, shrilled up from the men. They fell backward, rolled on the deck, stumbled over each other, trying to get away. Pilcher, empty-handed like Ned, grinned and started toward them. But Ned Lowe stepped forward and faced Winter, who was trembling there as he stood. Bloody Ned, he gasped. Back to hell with thee. I'm done with thee. You're not done with me till I see ye hung, shot out Ned, and started forward. Ghost or no, rang out a thin, drunken scream. I'll kill ye over again. It was Dickon. He darted out of the shadows, mad with fear and rum, and his arm swung in an arc. I shouted at Ned, and hearing the shout, Ned turned. The knife went past him, singing viciously, and thudded into another mark. The sound of it hitting was plain to all of us. From winter broke a furious, gasping shout. He put hand to belt, and a pistol broke the silence with its roar. Then he tried his second pistol. Through the smoke I saw Ned go plunging forward, bringing him down to the deck with raked hands. And through the smoke I saw the boy Dickon, rent and riddled by those bullets, fall across the rail and gasp out his life. One of the seamen ran at me blindly and struck with his knife, and I loosed at him. We had it hot and thick for a moment, the man stark mad with fear, until the steel went into him and he sank blubbering away. Out of the shadows reeled two figures, Gunner Basil and the bosun, locked breast to breast and fighting like mad. Aye, and there was the black cook, Philip, swinging an empty musket and yelling as he ran after the frightened men. Looking back to Ned, running to help him, I saw him swing an empty pistol and then come to his feet. I had him by the hand and cried out at the good grip. Man, man, I thought you dead there ashore. Sounds, there's not much life left in me, he said, and laughed out with so gay a note that I wondered. Had not Dickens' knife spoiled Winter's aim, I'd be gone. But he's taken care of. See that he's bound fast, George. He staggered and would have fallen, but that I caught him. There was a bandage about his body, beneath his shirt, and the blood was seeping out afresh from his wound. Polly Langton ran to us, crying and laughing all at once, and as Ned sank down on the deck I turned to her. Polly, take care of him quickly, I cried. I must see to things. I left her kneeling over him and started forward, wild with eagerness to clinch this astounding turn that had flung the ship into our hands again. Bosun Pilcher rose up from the dock before me, a dripping knife in his hand, and I looked down to see Gunner Basil writhing out his life on the planks. Quick, Bose, go tie up Winter, unless he's hurt to death. I'll see to all for it. I ran on, and in the bows found the three remaining seamen, partly recovered from their mad panic, roiled in a furious encounter with Philip, who had pursued them there. When I came up and the men knew my voice, they flung down knives and yelled for mercy. I shoved a coil of light line into Philip's hands and told him to bind them. You shall have what punishment Captain Lowe meets out, I told them. Stay bound until morning, you dogs, and if you're not hanged, thank your fortune. 
Philip, make him fast. Then haul each to a gun carriage and lash him there. When you're done, report aft. We must have the ship cleaned up before those islanders come aboard in the morning, else they'll take us for pirates and not ship. Aye, sir, sang out Philip with a laugh. I went back aft and found Boatswain Pilcher just mounting to the main yard with a line. He grinned cheerfully and paused long enough to tell how he had been scraped by a bullet over the head, but not greatly hurt, and how that evening he had found Ned Lowe crawling over the sand, and the rest was not hard to guess, though I shrank at thought of their swimming out to the ship through those shark-infested waters. And so to where Polly Langton knelt weeping beside Ned, who sat up and caught at my hand with the shadow of his old gay laugh. Polly, I exclaimed, why the tears, dear lass? Here Ned is heard, but not badly, and the ship and the gold are ours, and yonder goes bows to reeve the line that hang Trunnell Toby. Why the tears? That's why, George, she said, and laughed through her tears. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Pirate's Gold, Part 4 of 4, by H. Bedford Jones. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off anything in the store. Give more and you get more. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.